Man, isn't that awesome? The fact that on Easter Sunday, when we're not even able to be here in the same room together, that we can still celebrate God's faithfulness through baptism in the life of Lainey. I'm so thankful for Lainey and her family willing to, to share that with us and to, to use that day. And it's such a rejoicing moment, a refreshing moment to see the life of Christ uh, again, making all things new uh, in the life of Lainey. And, and Lainey, thank you for telling your story with our church family, even when at times where it's hard for us to be able to do that now. Well, happy Easter, Westmead family. I am glad that you're still sticking around and having some time with us. We're going to enjoy our time together in the Word. But before we do, uh, I just want to remind you, maybe maybe this is somebody, maybe you've never been a part of our, our video series or our worship online. And, uh, and again, I welcome you. I'm thankful that you're here. But what we do sometimes is as we walk through our time together, uh, we take a minute to hit pause on the video uh, and you with the people there in the room with you uh, answer a question or do an activity or do some type of discussion-based thing. Uh, so I'm just getting everybody up to speed if you've never done this with us before, uh, that that's what we do. And we're going to start off by having one of those moments this morning. Uh, so what I want you to do in just a minute is I want you to hit pause and you can turn it into a game or whatever you want to do in your house. But I want you to make two lists. Okay. Uh, obviously we're having online services because of what's going on with the pandemic in our world, uh, how coronavirus is affecting things and limiting us to be able to be together and to gather. Uh, so what we're going to do, uh, is in your home or wherever you're watching with the people you're with, I want you to come up with two lists. Okay. If you want to do it like a game to where, you know, you have three minutes for this and three minutes for that, or however you want it, maybe you just want to discuss it, but I want you to come up with two lists. One of the lists, I want you to come up with the things you miss, the things that you miss because life is different now, all right? So think about the things you miss, uh, and then the other list I want you to come up with is the things you don't miss, the things you don't miss. And like I said, if you want to turn it into a game and be like, how many things can we come up with that we miss in under three minutes, and then how many things we come up with, with? whatever you want to do, I want you to take this time to hit the pause button and come up with those two lists of the things you miss the things you don't miss. Ready? Go. Well, even though I didn't give you instructions to hit play again, I hope this means that you did come up with that and you're hitting play and we're continuing on. Hopefully that was kind of something fun for you to kind of get to thinking about what are the things that are different about life now. Uh, because we always, we often tend to think about the things we miss, but you know, there's a lot of things that maybe we don't miss that we need to remember about, uh, but I want you to enjoy this. This morning, uh, as we spend time together in God's word, I have one simple yet profound statement that I want to share with you today. And you might be watching this and you, you know this very, very well, but you also might be watching this and you have doubts. Or you might be watching this and you've never heard this before, but regardless of where you are or your background, I want you to know something today. I want you to know that God loves you. God loves you. It is the most profound three-worded statement that has ever been mentioned in the human language in all of eternity. But yet it is true. The underlying truth of Easter is that God loves you. And maybe you just want to take a minute to look around at the people of the room and say, hey, God loves you, God loves you. But, but I want you to think about that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you? What evidence do you have that God loves you? What makes you believe, Yeah, well, yeah, God loves me. What makes you think that? I want you to have another minute to hit pause uh, in just a minute. We're going to talk about this in just a minute. But I want you to think about, yes, God loves me. Why does God love me? What does that mean? What does that look like? You know, a few weeks ago, we looked in Isaiah chapter 43. And specifically in verse 4, there's a statement in there that God tells his people, and because I love you. So it's even in his word, his declaration of love, that God loves you. But in order for us to understand what that means this Easter, in order for us to really celebrate Easter in the way that God means for us to celebrate it in the context of his love for us, we're going to look at those three words that God loves you. We're going to break that down and fully understand what that means. So in order for us to do that, to understand that God loves you, 
We have to start with the first word, God. And my question to you is this, who is God? Who is God? This question has been asked all throughout history. Anytime there was humans, there was the question, who or what is God? And you know, the truth of it is that people are going to continue to ask that question until we get our answer face to face. So what I want you to do is I want you to hit pause and I want you to discuss with the people around you, who is God? Okay, take as much time as you need. And when you're, when you're done, hit play and we'll continue on. But I want you to answer the question, who is God? So as you discussed that, as you dove into that, uh, you probably came up with some really good answers. You probably came up with some uh, various things. Probably somebody in the room probably shared something from God's word. And, and that's the first point place I want us to look that as we look at who is God, I want us to look at his word uh, and let God speak for himself and let God in his word tell us who he is. Just a couple of things for you to see here. We see in John chapter four, God is spirit. We see in first John chapter four, that God is love. We see in Revelation 22, God calls, refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega. In Exodus 3, when Moses asks him, who do I tell him is sending me? He just says the phrase, tell them I am is sending you. So he is I am. In Psalms 86, it says that God is good and forgiving. In Revelation 4, as well as Psalm 33, we see that God is the creator uh, probably some of these were even mentioned in, in the time that you discussed this together. But, but, but I want us to try to, to wrap our minds around this idea of who is God. Now, the truth is we can't answer that question. We literally don't have the words in our vocabulary of any vocabulary, of any language, of any human civilization that has ever been has enough or proper words to describe who is God. Ever since the beginning, ever since Adam and Eve, people have wondered who is God? What is he like? What is he about? Uh, but this morning, as we talk about who is God, uh, if a part of our God is love, I want to point out five specific aspects of God, unique qualities of God that he portrays that humanity, not only can we not portray it, but we can't even fathom it or grasp it mentally. Even in our best dream, we couldn't wrap our mind around these five qualities of God. See, there's a lot of things that, that humanity shares, the traits, the attributes, the characteristics that we can identify with that God demonstrates. That doesn't mean we fully understand them because we're looking at them from a human perspective. But when we look at it from God's perspective, there's a lot of traits where they're similar. But there are five specific things, and there's a lot more than five, uh, of characteristics of God I want us to talk about today that points to who God is. The first is that God is eternal. God is eternal. That means he has no beginning and he has no end. In Psalms chapter 90, verse 2, it says this, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal, always has existed and always will exist. He has no beginning, he has no end. People are not eternal. While people have eternal life, we had a beginning. We had something that we had to re rely on to bring us into this world, to give us life. People are not eternal. People are limited by time. People and kingdoms and civilizations and societies rise and fall, ebb and flow. Everything happens within the context and on the scale of time. Because we have a beginning and we have an end, because we know a beginning and we know an end, people are not eternal. God is not eternal. I mean, God, excuse me, God is eternal. He is not limited by time. And what that means, if we put it into context, is if you think about everything you know or everything you have ever known outside of God, it has a beginning and it has an end. God does not. He is not limited by time. Unlike us, time has no effect on God. Uh, it's funny because uh, I, I get picked on by people younger than me at my uh, gray or white hair that's starting to come up on my head, which I wear it proudly because I've earned every single strand. Uh, 
But then at the same time, on the other side of the coin, there are people older than me that still refer to me as young man. Uh, and that's kind of, I like that, by the way. Uh, it's just kind of ironic. Because we, we look and see the effect that time has on us, but we look at it from the perspective of where we are based on what time, what effect time has had on us. God doesn't involve any of that. God is outside of time. God is eternal. He looks at time. Uh, it's, it's all laid out in front of him. It's not rising and falling. It's not a, a peak moment. It is just all laid out in front of him. God is eternal. Second thing I want to point you to, that God is omnipresent. Omnipresent. What that means, it's kind of a big fancy word. It means God is everywhere at all times. We see this in Psalms chapter 139, beginning in verse 7. This is what it says. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. See, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. And because he is everywhere at all times, church, we are assured that God is always with us. And even if, even if you're your first time ever, not just joining in part of our, our, our online presence, but maybe this is the first time you've ever really thought about who is God, know that when we say he's omnipresent, that doesn't mean just that he's everywhere at all times. That also means that he is always with you at all times. That means he's with you on the good, th- on the good days and in the good things in your life. And that's easy to acknowledge God in those times, but sometimes that's even easier to forget God in our good times. But it also means that he's with us in the times that we struggle. He's with us in the times that we might define as bad times or hard times. God is with us and he sees all of that. In Hebrews 4, verse 13, the author says this, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give count. When we say that God is everywhere at all times, we can't escape the presence of the Lord. It's exactly what the psalmist was writing about when we just saw that passage in Psalms just a little bit earlier. Josh McDowell says it this way. He says, in reference to God, God's ever presence makes it possible for us to be in constant communication with him and to depend on him in every situation. But often we ignore his presence because we are so preoccupied with our own lives. Sometimes we even forget he is with us while we are busy serving him. Hmm. That's a powerful statement when we consider that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. That he's with us and we lose sight of that so oftentimes. So when we talk about God and we're looking at these uh, definable attributes that we do not share. Humanity, people are not omnipresent. We are finite man. We can only be in one place at one time. Um, but God is not. He's not limited by time because he's eternal. He's not limited by space because he is omnipresent. Third thing I want to point out to you when we answer the question of who is God uh, is this, that God is unchanging. God is unchanging. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 It says this, God speaks of himself. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. God is unchanging. You know, people people are are changing a lot. I think everything about people changes. We change our minds. We change our attitudes. We change our focus. We change our worldviews. We change our political stance. We change our clothes. We change everything. Some people change a lot. There's nothing wrong with change, uh, especially when we are changing from a poor behavior into a more healthy lifestyle and behavior, especially when we're changing from what the world wants us to be and we're being transformed because of the transformational power of God and his word into being conformed to the image of Christ in whom we are created. 
So the third thing is that God never changes. And what's beautiful about this church, what's beautiful about the fact that God never changes means that he's consistent. It means that he is consistent, not just in who he is, but in in being consistent in who he is, that means he is consistent in his character. He is consistent in his attributes. And think about what are the attributes of God that we love, that we embrace, that we desire, that we run to him for. We run to God for the attributes, things like uh, the way he practices grace and mercy and love and justice and compassion and all of these things that we see evident in God. Most, most notably, as we look and stand on God's word, we see consistency in his truth that God never changes. And because God never changes, because we have an unchanging God, our future is certain in his hands. Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about how God is unchanging this week. And man, I think about so many times how many mistakes I make and how many foolish things I do or say or think. And man, if, if our God wasn't unchanging, I guarantee you I've done enough in my life for him to change my mind, to, for him to change his mind on choosing to love me. So when we talk about that God is unchanging, it's easy for us to be like, well, that's great. No, it means the world. Because that means God's never going to give up on me. He's never going to quit on me. He's never going to withdraw his love for me nor his presence. And it's the same for you. That when we answer the question of who is God and we talk about God as love, he is unchanging. He's consistent. Now, humanity tries to be consistent. People, myself, I try to be consistent across the board. But we depend those things on mood or our situation or our emotions. God is unchanging. He's consistent. And when I mentioned earlier that part of that unchanging consistency in God is his justice, that's either really good or that's really bad, depending on the life you're living and how you are seeking God or ignoring him. But God is unchanging. The fourth one I want to point to is that God is independent. God is independent. Another phrase we could use is that God is self-sufficient. And it's easy for people to think we're independent. You know, we live in America. We live in the United States. We have freedom. We have independence. But the truth of the matter is we depend on a lot of things. We depend on a lot of people or both. We depend on things. You're you're able to be a part of what we do as a church because you're depending on your computer or your device or whatever it is that's connected to the internet to play this video for you. So your device is dependent on the internet. And the internet is dependent on the fact that we upload this properly. And it's uploading this properly is dependent on whether or not I can get through this sermon and make sense by the end of it. So we depend on a lot of things. We depend on God in every single bit of it. When you think about creation... All of creation depends on God, but God doesn't depend on any of creation. He doesn't depend on anything. He doesn't depend on anyone. He is God. He is independent. And Paul says it uh, in Acts chapter 17, Paul was proclaiming this in verse 24 and 25. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything rather he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else it's just beautifully stated the truth that god is not dependent on anything he's not dependent on creation but all of creation is dependent on him. So while we might think we live in America and we live in freedom, we're not truly independent beings because there's so much we rely on. And if you're still looking for a relevant example of things you rely on because you're so independent, take that next breath and tell me how well your body would function without it. We depend on so many things. God depends on nothing. People have mistakenly even come out and said, well, for God, he desires to be glorified. So God depends on creation to give him glory. Well, that's actually inaccurate. Yes, 
creation was designed and created to give God glory, but God's glory is not dependent on creation. Uh, Matter of fact, Jesus states twice in John chapter 17 while praying to his father, he uses these two phrases. These won't be on the screen, but in John chapter 17, I believe it's in verse 4, he says glory, and when he's talking about his glory, he's talking about glory that I had with you before the world was made. A little bit later in the same chapter, Jesus prays this. He refers to, Jesus says, my glory, which you have given me in your love for me before the foundation of the world. Before creation was even created, the glory of God was being made known that God and Christ and the Holy Spirit were sharing and bringing glory to the Father. Glory took place and God God himself shared his glory with his Son and the Holy Spirit because God is independent. He has zero need for me. Because God is independent, he has zero need for you. And I don't say that to be offensive. I'm saying it because it's absolute truth. God doesn't need us for anything. And you might be thinking, so why in the world am I here? Because he wants you for something far greater than you can come up with on your own. God is independent. The fifth thing I want us to see is this when we talk about who is God. Is that God is sovereign. God is is sovereign. Now, when I was growing up, I heard that word a lot, and I didn't fully understand that. So, so let me just kind of give it to you in simple terms. God is the ultimate authority. God is in charge of everything. And when I mean everything, I mean all things. And I'm not talking about, uh, he's got the whole world. He does, and we need to be reminded of that. Uh, during this crisis, this pandemic that we're facing. But I want us to make it a little more personal. When we say God is sovereign, when we say God is over everything, I want us to think more specifically about the things that maybe we don't associate with God or maybe we want to blame God for. Here's a snapshot of what I mean when I'm talking about God's sovereignty. God controls time and seasons. God controls nature for his purposes. God has dominion over people. God raises and removes rulers. God has a plan for his people that cannot be interrupted. God is sovereign. God can and will do literally whatever he wants. There is nothing we can say about it that's going to divert the path of our lives or the path of anything else. Now, we make mistakes. We choose for ourselves actions and there are consequences that we have wandered into and we think well why didn't God stop me from that because God wants you to choose to love him why because he's sovereign that's probably why he told Moses I am that's my name and you tell them that I am is sending you God is sovereign so we talk about the fact that God loves you God. And I still don't understand him, but I sure am thankful for him. So God loves you. God, that's what we kind of get a snapshot of who God is. So let's move on to loves. Loves. Now, that ask the next question. What is love? And you're probably already, some of y'all are already thinking of that song and your head's starting to bob a little bit like this. That's okay too. But what I want you to do is I want you to take a minute to hit pause and I want you to go around the room or whoever you're there with, even if it's just you and your spouse, and I want you to answer the question, what is love? All right, so take a few minutes. When you're done, hit play. We'll continue. But answer the question with the people you're with, what is love? Did you get some good answers? I bet there was quite a bit of conversation. I bet there was a quite, quite a bit of perspective that was shared there. I hope none of you got in trouble um, because whatever reason when it comes to the definition of love. But probably when you were discussing love, uh, somebody in the room, maybe even yourself, probably answered and said, well, love, mm, when you're trying to define it, you said, love is like la, 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 la. A box of chocolates, whatever. I don't know. That's life. Excuse me. But when we try to define love, a lot of times we end up saying, what is love? Love is, love is like, and we fill in an example. 
We have a lot of examples of what live, love is. We could talk all day long that love is like this or it's like that. But do we know what love is? Love has been described in four unique ways. Uh, the Greek terms for, for how we describe love. The first one is called storge. It's a Greek word and it means it's talking about a family love. Uh, storge type of love is the love that's shared between parents and children. Uh, a love that's shared between uh, siblings or eventually shared between siblings, you know. Because um, maybe you're at that stage in your family's life where your siblings aren't exactly loving one another. Uh, hang in there, trust me. Pour the love of Christ into them. You'll see some examples. But storge is that parent to love. It's the bond that develops amongst a family. Second love is philos. And everyone's familiar with this because of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and that's what philos is. It's a brotherly, between friends type of love. It is a deep and sincere love, uh, a very dear bond between friends. Um, and when you talk about that idea, the, those lifelong friends that you're going to have or the lifelong friends that you've had, there's a philos type of love there. Then there's eros, the third type of love, eros, which is a physical love. It's a romantic love. This is the type of love that should be shared between uh, a, a husband and his wife. Um, eros is that real physical, intimate, uh, romantic type of love. And then we have the fourth love, which is agape. Agape is a selfless love. It's an unconditional love. It's, it's, when we talk about an agape love, it's the closest thing to a perfect love that we can imagine. It's unconditional. It is pure love. The Bible has several examples of what love is and what it looks like and, and when it's lived out, how it's demonstrated. John says in John, Jesus says, excuse me, <clears throat> in John chapter 15, verse 13, he says, greater love has no one than this. To lay down one's life for one's friends. When you think about that, that last word, friends, kind of resonates with it. Like, oh, he's talking about a, a philos type of love, brotherly love, a, a friendship type of love. But, but if you, you take that one word, friends, and I don't want that last word to redefine the whole meaning of the scripture. Because ultimately, Jesus is pointing us to in this passage that agape type of love. A sacrificial, unconditional, perfect kind of of love. This this verse is actually pointing to Jesus's willingness for what he's going to do a few chapters later when he lays down his life for his friends, which is even more amazing when you step back and think about the fact that Jesus knew he was going to the cross. Jesus knew that he was going to be taking on the sins of the world, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. For mankind who only whose only hope is in Jesus. So when he's telling them greater love has no one than this to lay one's life down for his friends, he's actually foreshadowing the type of love he's not only going to explain to them, but describe and define for them in his actions and his lifestyle. The way that he is going to allow them that through his blood, we're going to experience forgiveness and deliverance and salvation for our disobedience, which is known as sin, will be covered up and taken away by the blood that Jesus will willingly lay down his life and shed for the glory of God the Father. God's word further defines love in 1 Corinthians 13, and you've probably heard read at weddings or something, but uh, this is bigger than just uh, in a wedding passage of scripture. This is God's eternal word. In verses 4 through 7, it says this. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. Hmm. What a perfect love described here in this passage of Scripture. This is the love that God shows to those who love Him and follow Him and are called according to His purpose. This is the love that God shows to those who have received the offering of love and life through His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, when we think about love, when I think about love, I think about how I am loved. I think about how I'm loved by my wife. 
that any other human being on this planet has no more reason to choose not to love me than my wife. But yet, she still chooses to give me love, to show me love. She still chooses to love me. I think about how I'm loved by her. I think about how I'm loved by my children. I think about how I'm so undeserving for my kids to even still smile at me and want to be around me. I think about how I'm loved by them and how they trust me and how they just want to be with me. I don't understand that because I know me. But I think about how I'm loved by them. I think about how I have been loved by my, my mom. I think about how I was loved by my father, even to the very last day on earth for the two of them. I think about how I'm loved by my brother, a total, complete, deep love, a kindred spirits type of love. I think about how I'm loved by my in-laws, uh, that, that while legally I'm a part, they got to put up with me, they welcome me into their family, not their home, their family, and love me just as well as they love their children. And I'm so undeserving. I think about how I'm loved by my closest friends. I think about how I'm loved by Westmead, my church family, and how undeserving, how small I am, and how I don't deserve the love that I'm given, yet they choose. There's no obligation. There's no people forcing or making them to let they choose to give someone so petty and undeserving they choose to love me i think about how i'm loved and then i think about how meager it is when i try to love them in return and how small it is compared to how well and how vast they have loved me first It's an example, it's a reflection of what God is trying to show me of how he loves me. The people that love you can only do so in the capacity of the love that God has given them. That even even if you look at this and be like, man, this religion stuff's crazy, This, this God stuff, it's nuts, I'm just sitting here watching this thing because I'm with my family and it's Easter, I get... Think about it whatever you want, but understand this, how you're loved, God's using that to show you how he loves you. Because you don't deserve it. Nobody's obligated to continue to do it. And they're not being forced to, they choose to. And as small as that makes us feel when we really get down to how we are loved, it's just a very small, minuscule comparison to the vastness of God's love towards you. I want you to take a minute. I want you to hit pause. You're going to have one of those pause moments. I want you to hit pause. And I want you to talk about this with the people you're with. I want you to talk about how the people closest to you love you. And then maybe I want you to take it one step further and, and say, how do you choose to show love to those same people? How do you choose to respond with love? How do you choose to love them in return. So hit the pause button and when you're done, just hit play. We'll continue. But answer the question, how do the people around you, how do the people closest to you show you love? And how do you respond by showing them love in return? Man, when you think about it, maybe some of the things you just heard, doesn't it make you feel really small? but at the same time makes you feel like the greatest person on earth to know that somebody loves you like that. And maybe you're sitting there all by yourself and you're like, yeah, I didn't really have anybody to discuss it with. Did you know that you're loved in ways beyond what you can possibly imagine? And even if you're there by yourself, know this, you're loved, no doubt about it. And I'm gonna tell you how and why in just a minute. But for me, when I think about how I'm loved, I can name 3,000 at least reasons just from today of why I don't deserve to be loved. But yet, I am still loved. I look at the people that I mentioned and I think about how they love me. And I wonder, of all the things I've done and all the stupid things, why do they still love me? I still don't have an answer. 
I still don't understand it, but I sure am thankful for it. God loves you. So we talked about who God is. We talked about what love is. So now, who are you? Who are you? And when I ask that question, I'm not asking about your name. I'm not asking about your lineage. I'm not asking about where you came from, your family tree. I'm asking about you at your core, at your essence, the person deep, deep, deep inside that you're scared to death for everyone else to see, the person that nobody really knows who you are. Maybe a few select people know, but I'm talking about you. In the Bible, King David asks this very question in Psalms chapter 8 and verse 4. He says, what is man? And he's talking to God. He says, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. When we talk about who are you, David was probably trying to figure this thing out himself. And he went straight to God and said, God, who is man that that you, God, the one we just talked about, you would care for him. That you would give thought to him. Who are you? Perhaps Job in his book, maybe he answers that question, who are you? Maybe he answered even better when he's referring to a man. He says this in Job chapter 14, verse 1. He says, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Maybe Job's answer is a lot more in line with where you find yourself today. Man, born of woman, short-lived, full of turmoil. Life is crazy right now. Maybe you're coming out of a crisis. Maybe this pandemic is kind of overwhelming to you. Maybe there's other things happening in your life. Who are you? How are you responding to these things? How are you answering the call to move forward with your life in spite of all these things? Now, I'm not going to stand here and be that preacher that points and yells and spits and tells you who you ought to be. I'm not. But I am going to be that preacher who couldn't tell you who you were created to be and point you to the eternal truth. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27... It says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Who are you? Well, it starts with the fact that who you are, that you were created in the image of God. You were created by God. You were created for God. You were created in the image of God of God. That's who you are. I don't know how you think about yourself, how you describe yourself, how the the things you hate about yourself or the things that you love about yourself. I'm just wanting you to know that's who you are. You are God's. Now, because we have a natural born desire to want to call the shots, we have a natural born desire to be in charge, we have disobeyed God. Simply by choosing what we want over what God wants, we have disobeyed God. Now, you might even sit back and think, you know what? How can I be held accountable for something? I'm not a, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a God person. I'm not somebody who gets into all this church stuff. I don't even know God's commands. So if I break them, how am I held responsible for them? Well, that's a good question. But you remember a few minutes ago when we were talking about who God is and we talked about that he is sovereign? That he is the ultimate authority, that all things fall under him and in submission and in compliance to him. That's what we mean. That even unwillingly breaking God's commands leaves you susceptible to be punished by God. I found this interesting. Did you know in the state of Alabama, it is illegal to wear a mask in public? Boy, that's, that's problematic for everybody trying to stay away from this coronavirus right now. Did you know in Alabama it's also illegal to play dominoes on Sundays? Now, raise your hand if you have ever broken either of these two laws in the state of Alabama. Yeah, I have, and it's not from the dominoes, sorry. But you, li- you listen to those things, and by the way, these are, these are legit things. They're not really enforced, but these are actual laws in the state of Alabama. 
And if they enforced them and they caught you playing dominoes on Sundays or wearing a mask in public, there could be a penalty for that. And you might think, how are they going to penalize me for that? I didn't even know it was real because it's a law. And as long as you're in the context of the physical boundaries of the state of Alabama, you're accountable to that law. Now, I'm thankful they don't uphold these two laws and specifically in some of these other crazy laws that we see. But it doesn't matter if you know the law or not. If you break it, you're going to be held accountable for it. It's the same thing with God. God is the ultimate authority. And yes, you were created in his image. And yes, you were created by God, for God, in the image of God. But when we choose to do it what we want to do and not what we know God wants us to do and we break his commands, we are disobeying the ultimate authority. We are breaking the law of the ultimate authority that's placed over us in the sovereignty of God. And just like the state of Alabama, just like your parents or whatever rules or laws that you've always had in place over you, when you break a law, when you break a rule, there's consequences with that. There's consequences with that. It's the same thing with God. That if you've disobeyed God even once, there are consequences you will be held accountable for, regardless if you knew the command or not. It's kind of best summed up in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. When when Paul writes this in God's word, it says this in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says... As for you, you, who are you? As for you, you were dead in your own transgressions and sins. So when we talk about this idea of disobedience, when we talk about this this idea that we have broken a law, that we have disobeyed the ultimate authority, the sovereignty of God, that's called sin. And maybe that's a a word you're familiar with, if you've heard before, but you've never really heard it defined. That's what it is. Sin is when we disobey God. Whether we know it or not, it's called sin. That's what Paul's writing about here. Because of our sins, we were dead. Because guess what? Every time you pursue a lifestyle that just exists to make you happy, to please you, guess what? It's like batteries, man. After a while, it's going to hit zero and you're just going to throw them away and you've got to go find some new ones. The destructive lifestyle we live, the choices we live to validate us, the, the, the life that we pursue to make us happy, to make us feel good, eventually runs out. And that's what he's talking about here. This life of living in our sin, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Yeah, he's talking about Satan. He's talking about the devil there. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Now listen to this. This is what Paul says. When we talk about who are you, this is who we are. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. See, when I make mistakes, when I disobey God, when I sin, particularly years and years ago when our sin creates a separation between us and God. Because see, God is holy. God is perfect. And in his presence is no sin, nor can there be sin entered into his presence. So it must be separated from him. So that when you and I have sin, It separates from God. Now, we also said that sin is disobeying the ultimate authority, which means there's a penalty, there's a punishment for that. We've sacrificed our own holiness because of our sin. And the only punishment penalty for that is death. There's no working our way back. You can't be good enough. There's no deeds or works or anything that can overtake it. Well, I told one lie, so I went and confessed to two truths to make it better. It didn't make it better. It's still there. Is still on your record. And just like Paul writes here, because of our sin, we are by nature, which means we were born into it, we deserve the wrath of God. When you talk about a God who is independent, eternal, omnipresent, unchanging, and sovereign, you can imagine that the wrath of God that comes from a God that 
exists in all of those things and so much more, it ain't nothing nice. And it's not going to be pretty. Let's keep reading. My favorite word in scripture. But. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Remember we just said because of our sins we are dead. Now God, because of Christ, has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in sin. It is by grace you have been saved. When we talk about saved, maybe that's a phrase you've heard before. When we talk about saved, we're talking about, we just talked about the, the punishment, the penalty that you're going to have to pay for your sin, for your disobedience. What it means is that Christ stepped in your place and saved you from that punishment, but somebody has to be punished. Somebody has to pay the penalty. Christ paid that penalty for you on your behalf and paid it in full. He saved you from that. That's what he's talking about. When you hear people that you might think are fanatics or Christians or church people or whatever you want to categorize us as, they might use that term, are you saved? That's what we're talking about. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show, get this, the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Who are you? That's what we started it. Who are you? You're creating the image of God, but you tainted that image when we chose to disobey God because we wanted to do it our way. That was called sin. Sin is a penalty that requires punishment. But Christ, but God, because of his great love for us, sent Christ to not just save us from that penalty, not just to remove us from that, but to also absorb and accept the full penalty and punishment, not just for your sins, for everybody's sins. And you don't deserve it. I certainly don't deserve it. There's not a single person in the history of humanity that deserves what Jesus did. That's called grace. When you get something you don't deserve, that's called grace. And Paul writes here that God might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He goes on, he says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Grace saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast For we are God's handiwork. Remember earlier? You're created in the image of God. Created in Christ Jesus. But this is what you were created for. To do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You were created by God. You were created for God in the image of God. This is not just who we are. But this is what God. The eternal God. The independent God. The the omnipresent God, the unchanging God, the sovereign God has afforded us to live in the context of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Which leads me to the underlying point of this entire thing. God loves you. God and everything that He is loves you. And how undeserving that makes us feel. You. Exactly who you are right now. God loves you. There's nothing you did that could deserve it or earn it. Nor is there anything you could do to make him stop. God loves you. And I really, really, really hope that that statement, that powerful three-worded statement leads you to ask one question. How? If God loves me, how can God love me like that? This is how. 
when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they arrived, they looked up and they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not even here. Come see the place where they laid him. That's how God loves you. It wasn't just enough for him to step out of time and space. It wasn't just enough to love someone so undeserving like yourself, like my me. He was not going to even let death stop us from being loved by God. This is how God loves you. You know, a shorter version of this story is this. God so loved the world. God so loved you that he sent his only son. And that's, that's Jesus. That whoever, 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 you whoever, me whoever, whoever believes in him won't perish. And I'm not just talking about a physical death. I'm talking about won't perish and forever be separated from God. He won't perish but have eternal, everlasting life with God in his presence. That's kind of the the Cliff Notes version of this whole story that God loves you. He created you. He forgives you. He accepts you. He loves you. And I hope you get sick of me telling you. Because that's where it starts, where it's starting to sink in, that God loves you. But see, the truth of the matter is, we, can, we know that we're loved by God, but, but we have to take it one step further. You remember earlier when I got you to talk to the people in your room, how, do you, how, do you, how are you loved by those people, but take it one step further and talk about how do you respond, how do you love somebody back? That, that's kind of what it, what it demands here, see? When we look at how God loves us and how well God loves us, there is a response necessary. Just like there's a response that when your mom or your dad or your spouse or your children come and, 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 and tell you they love you, you can respond in one of two ways. You can respond by loving them back or you can respond by not. It's the same offer when we talk about that God loves you. There's a response that's necessary. And we can sit back all day long and be like, but God loves me and it's so good. Oh, it is. But what are you doing in response? What are you doing in return for that? See, it's not just enough for us to sit back and know that God loves us. That's that's a fact. That's a truth. But where it falls on you, where it falls on me, is that we have to respond to God's love towards us. And responding in humility and obedience is what the Bible tells us we're called to do. That when we are faced with the reality, maybe for the first time that we recognize God loves me, well, here's our response. We respond to God by admitting that we have sinned. We admit that we have been disobedient. We admit admit that we deserve the penalty for the way we have disobeyed God. It's kind of like coming clean. It's confessing, you're right. I don't deserve your love. But it's taken it one step further, not just admitting, uh, not just self-deprivation or something, but it's, it's taken it one step further and, and recognizing by faith, which means a deep trust in who God is, that what Jesus did on the cross that we just read about, and not just what he did on the cross. For see, when he went on the cross, 
What I told you about when he took our place, what's called grace, the sins of all the world, of everybody that ever lived and anybody that ever will live, all of the sins of all humanity will rest upon his shoulders. And when he died that day, the penalty for our sin died that day. But for those who choose to reject what Jesus did, because we don't believe that really happened, we don't believe that happened for me, I'm not going to accept his gift of love to be punished for my sin. I reject that. When we reject it, it separates us from God. But when we say, you know what, I am a sinner. I have disobeyed you. And God, I accept the gift of grace that Jesus laid out on the cross. I accept his punishment for my penalty, God. And Father, I ask you to forgive me. May his blood cover my sin so that I can be forgiven. That I accept this gift of grace so that, God, you can recreate me and reform me in your image again from the inside out. God, I accept the gift of love and grace that you offered and have shown me through Christ Jesus. God, will you please change my life? That is the response that we give by knowing that God loves you. Now, for the Westmead family, I... I'm just going to have a few minutes to be completely transparent with you. It's very bittersweet that we get to have Easter in this context, separated like this. We've all been praying for weeks now that this would be lifted so that we could at least gather in Easter and celebrate together, but we're not. So Westmead family, in the past few weeks, we've kind of developed this new normal um, where I told you, you got to be vulnerable if you want people to trust you. So uh, I'm going to put myself out there here. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about, as you have, uh, I've been seeing so many posts and so many people texting, man, I just miss my church family. I miss being together. Trust me, so do I. So I like reading poems. Uh, the poems I like, uh, like they don't even rhyme. You know, they're just like deep and like, ooh, I got to think about that. So I wrote a poem that rhymes, and it's really cheesy, and it's really lame, but all week as I've been thinking about the fact that we're going to be separated at Easter and what that means and how we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, man, it's just, just started writing and it all kind of came out. So I just want to share this poem with you, but no, I'm praying for you, uh, and don't judge me too bad. I mean, you saw me eat biscuit dough, and you saw my pound puppy, so put it in the category of we're just going to give up on this guy when we all get back together. But um, this is what I feel. So I'm going to share this with you now. It's called What I Miss and What I Don't Miss. And then like the subtitle is Coronavirus and Easter. (laughs) Sorry. So just give me a minute. This is what I wrote. I said... I miss hugs. I miss faces. I miss the days without six-foot spaces. I miss so many little things like traffic and parks and onion rings. I miss carefree days, if there was such a thing, and meeting friends for lunch at Buffalo Wild Wings. The larger privileges are easy to miss, Add being in school and beach trips to the list. But I miss gathering together in worship on Sunday and dreading each sentence with ending it with the word someday. I miss seeing new life take place or the look of salvation on a new believer's face. I miss seeing all of the classrooms full. Maybe now we see the value of being in Sunday school. I miss, for we do not preach ourselves, you know, for Jesus' sake. I miss putting my envelope in the offering plate. The sounds, oh man, I long to hear those noises of a simple amen. Or the congregation lifting their voices. When we raise a hallelujah all the way to the rafters, 
or during the sermon, the rare sound of one person's laughter. How I'd love to hear the choir, the praise team, the band, and see a congregation respond with uplifted hands. I miss seeing only a few spaces left in the parking lot. I miss seeing families seated in their favorite spot. I miss our greeters, our ushers, our deacons, and all of the people serving those who are seeking. I miss our seniors, the babies, the husbands and wives. I miss life classes, small groups, and wildlife tribes. I miss seeing Westmead loving one another. Men shaking hands and calling each other brother. I miss families down front at the altar praying. I miss the ladies in the choir singing and swaying. I even miss the people on Sundays who don't pay attention. I miss the frustration it causes that I try not to mention. I miss the richness of our time together. And I'm tired of this virus we're all trying to weather. But now wait a minute, church. I need you to listen. This isn't just about the things that we're missing. See, while we're all scattered out on this Easter Sunday morn, we also need to give thought to the things outside of the norm. See, what I mean is we've all thought about the things that we're missing, but we need to be thinking about the goal of our mission. Those petty things I've read about before don't compare to the things I don't miss more. What I don't miss is the weight of my sin or the wrath of God upon me. So let me begin. You see, the purpose of Easter is to see the empty tomb. Jesus walking out the grave without a wrap or or even a wound. I don't miss the distance between God and me that was bridged by the cross of Calvary. I don't miss my sin and hopelessness replaced by Jesus' blood and righteousness. I don't miss the foolishness of this world that before Christ was all up in my head and would whirl. I don't miss being lost and afraid, not knowing if there is anything after the grave. I don't miss not having a church family that looks past my flaws and finds a way to love me. I don't miss the pain and despair the fearful thought of wondering if if anyone cares. I don't miss Easter being about a bunny that gives, but rather celebrate a Savior. And because he lives. I don't miss all the confusion and the chaos and strife, but I praise God. My name's written in the Lamb's book of life. I don't miss heaven. Not because I've been there before. I'm just not going to miss it now. I don't miss heaven because of what Jesus has done. Shown grace, given mercy, and now God calls me his son. You see, today isn't about all the things that we miss. Today is a day about the things we don't miss. Because if we just sit around and think of our story, we miss out on helping others see God's glory. And if you want to think about one thing that we miss, think about the people that still need forgiveness. Church, it's our privilege to celebrate Jesus and to tell others of his love that frees us. To share with the lost the hope of humanity and pray the Holy Spirit opens their heart to see. But we must teach them about repentance and grace and how Jesus Christ, Son of God, hung in our place. That there on the cross, the curse of sin was fully paid. And three days later, death was robbed from the grave. That today, while apart, Westmead stands strong. I love you. I miss you. But it won't be for long. Church, God loves you. And so do I. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Sunday. Let us praise him as we pray together. God, I thank you so much for the greatest truth anyone ever showed me is that God loves me. And God, I pray 
for anybody that is watching this on whatever device that they don't think about or hear or see a person or a silly poem or just anything. God, I pray that anything that comes out would be welcoming and ushering people into your presence. For the believers that watch this, I pray that your word has encouraged them. I pray that the truths that we talked about today of who you are and and what love is and who we are not, God, reminds them of how great your love is for them demonstrated in an empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. And God, I pray for the person that they're not sure they have a relationship with you, that maybe they would even be so bold to say, I'm not a Christian. God, I pray that the truth of your word, God, through your Holy Spirit, would translate to become truth in their heart. God, we don't have to be together to celebrate you. We don't have to be together to celebrate Easter. And God, while we long for the day that we will be together, may we not miss the opportunity now be with the people you've surrounded us with, even watching this, and to be reminded of the power of the gospel that we are called to proclaim and live out and take passionately to our neighbors. God, find us faithful in this time of pandemic. God, be with those who are providing care for people. Be with those who are sick. Be with those who are separated. Be with those dealing with great, great heartache. And God, when I ask you to be with them, I'm simply asking you to to remind them of the greatest three-worded phrase ever. Remind them, God, that you love them. For the sake of your glory, for the edification of your church, and for the name of Jesus to be lifted high right out of that empty tomb, we pray and ask these things. Amen. I love you, church. Happy Easter.